forever. Dog. Just between us. and Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and just a few moments ago, we figured out I don't know how to read spreadsheets correctly. Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink and cowabunga dude. So can you explain, can you explain what just shirt. happened? Okay, so here's what happened. We had our guests, <laughs> spoiler, we do the interview first and then we record the rest of the episode. So we had our guests. They were like, how many listens do you guys get? Like how many downloads do you guys get? And Allison said a number that was half of what we actually get. And then Melissa was like, what are you talking about? It's actually this number. And then Allison was like, what? And then I was like, this is why, okay, you think I live in a reality where like, oh, I'm so arrogant about how successful we are. Blah, blah, blah. I live in a fake reality. No, you, Allison, you live in a fake reality where things are worse than they are. Because we actually have double the amount of listeners to which you thought. I have to say I'm flying high right now because I really thought that this podcast didn't do that well. Allison. This is wonderful news. The podcast is twice as successful as I had been under the impression so that So then you didn't understand, like, because we were, like, getting more things for the, from the show being successful. And you didn't understand how we were, like, how that was affordable to our network because you thought that we were a failing show. I thought that they just kind of believed in us and liked what we were doing. <laughs> oh, my God. So in your mind, we've been doing this show for like years and you're like, we're an OK. We have an OK listenership. No, I mean, we, we have, have a, bad a huge listenership, listenership. You thought I thought we had a pretty low listenership. And that- now I'm figuring out we have a we have a, a good size listenership. Double, and in fact, what you and thought. It's double what I thought <laughs> But you were here. You were great. This is great news for me. I'm really excited about this. You were here just from sheer optimism and enthusiasm for the project. (laughs) And you had no idea that this show was popular. Well, because I really like what we do. I think we have really cool guests. Guys, like I think our our diehard fans are still listening. Listeners, but I don't think that like objectively was that successful of a podcast. I'm going to throw myself off a cliff. <laughs> I can't like this is the and you think everyone said, oh, Gabby, so overconfident, thinks everything is so successful when it isn't. Well, guess what? I, you're projecting quite a bit onto me today. Whatever. I think maybe you're just you're in you're a little feisty. I'm in an irritable mood. You're a little irritable. So I've we're having a little projection. Upped my <laughs> testosterone and I'm irritable now. <laughs> That's okay. I'll take it because I just got great news. Um, <laughs> this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. You thought, I can't, I can't even, you woke up every morning to do, like Friday to do this show and you were like, well, I just love it. <laughs> yeah I didn't I mean I didn't think we did have any listenership but I didn't think it was like like the number that you know, it is yeah Jesus and, Christ and yeah so this is great news 
And then and then we had started doing the TikToks and Melissa said that the listenership went up. And I said, that's wonderful. And then we were told that it stopped going up and it reverted. So I was like, oh, well, we failed there too. It didn't revert. It didn't revert, Allison. It stayed at the at the plus 18%. It just is not climbing more. It just stayed at that 18%. What is wrong with Wait, you? Really? I yes. thought it reverted. <laughs> Don't ever show her any numbers ever again. So I was also now making TikToks thinking this doesn't help at all. <laughs> Just for the sheer love of the game. You're I'm not sorry. allowed to see anymore. I'm taking over tech and statistics can, now. Can We're... somebody just explain the actual numbers to me after this? Yeah, call? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, this week on the show, we're going to be talking to Dr. Lily K. Ross and David Nichols all about the dangers of psychedelics, which is a, this will be a little companion to our episode that we did with Matthew Johnson about psychedelics from a while ago. So it's a real yin and yang. This is one of the interviews I've been most excited about. I totally slid into Lily's DMs and was like, please, please talk to me. Um, the work that they have done on this issue has changed my entire understanding of the issue. I feel like hopefully we are course correcting from some of the information we brought you in that other episode. Um, and I'm really interested to hear what people think. So um, yeah, like let, let us, let us know. Allison's fangirling. <laughs> I really am. And later we're going to be talking all about revenge. Is it worth it? Almost always. <laughs> but first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means? Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Allie, Pennsylvania. I will say that this person's name isn't Allie, but they asked to use that, which I find funny. That's cute. I like when people already have like pseudonyms that they clearly have used for other reasons. TLDR, how do you date when you don't know if you're asexual? Yep. Hi, I'm 30, she, her, and have recently found myself single for the first time in 11 years. I was married and have a toddler, but my ex and I split early this year for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason on his side is that I have no desire to have sex. For a little bit of history, I was very interested in sex when I was younger, despite the fact that it was always a painful experience for me. My gynecologist at the time told me it was normal. I was just small, and they offered some suggestions to help minimize the pain. Over time, my interest in sex lessened until it essentially didn't exist and hasn't for several years. I've been referring to myself as practically asexual for a while. After the birth of my toddler, I made a comment to my new gynecologist that referenced my pain with sex, and he immediately stopped me. After a series of questions, he told me that pain was not normal, was not because I was too small, and that it was likely preventable with physical therapy. He connected me with a pelvic physical therapist and a sex therapist to help me work through my issues with sex and desire. I have completed the physical therapy. The problem isn't solved, but I have tools now to work with my body at home to solve the issue of the pain. My sex therapist has also been great. She believes that my body has a trauma response to sex from the pain, and so, of course, I have no desire. And here's the problem. My partner and I are no longer together, and so I don't have anyone safe that I can experiment with to see if sex is still painful or to see if I can look forward to it if penetration is off the table. I don't have any friends or acquaintances that could fill this gap either. 
My therapist believes it's important for me at some point to try it in a safe environment before my body can learn not to shut down at the thought of it. So how do I go about dating when sex is complicated? I have a child, so I have to be careful with who I invite into my life and how I go about it. How do you date when you don't know if sex will ever be on the table for you? Do I just buckle down on the assumption I've ace? Also, dating apps feel so impersonal, and I have a hard time feeling connected to people I message. And now I even feel conflicted about what I'm interested in. I've only dated cis men in the past, but if sex isn't for me, then I feel like maybe I should be branching out and exploring what my sexuality looks like. Genitalia was always what dissuaded me from pursuing women, but if that's not an issue, then I feel like there is no limit to the possibilities, which is intimidating in itself. I appreciate any insight or wisdom you can offer. Keep up the great work, and I love the show. So one thing I want to say is that I feel like there's a lot of emphasis, and not from you, Allie, but I feel like there's a lot of emphasis on penetration when with regards to sex and penetration being penis in vagina and penetration ha- being a huge reason as to why you would want to date or be with someone. When like, for example, saying that genitalia is why you haven't wanted to be with women is like kind of it does not I don't think it's purposefully transphobic from you, but I do think it's like you 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 seem very stuck on penetration as penis and vagina. And so that hasn't even really allowed you to think about different genitals in different contexts and like the ways in which that, you know, there are people who are not men who have penises. There are people who are not women who have vaginas. There also are tons of people with either set or intersex or whatever that don't want to have sex that way. You know, there are there are people for whom penetration is not on the table for them at all. And in in all sorts of cis straight men, uh, trans women, like, you know, trans men like that's there's like such specifics involved in how each type of person has sex that I don't think you're seeing dating as liking a person like you. You're, you're going to meet you need to see it as like you meet someone who you like, who you feel comfortable with, who you who you are interested in. And then the way that you two particularly have sex with each other is I and to me in my life has always kind of been secondary to like my connection with the person like and my and my connection. OK, so this is the way that me and you have sex. That's fine. But like, do I like you? Do I want to be around you? Are is it possible even and let's say this is just in my life. Is it possible that everybody's having orgasms? Great. Then who cares what's happening? Like, I think like there's this very strange pressure on and I think maybe you're a cis woman pressure on you to be like, well, if I can't have sex this one particular way, then I can't build a connection. Whereas like, what if you built the connection first? Does that make sense? Am I crazy? No, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense. I think I maybe understand where she's coming from in terms of and I could be wrong, but I, I think and we kind of talked about this in the other episode, but I think there is maybe this sense of like as a, a, a straight person or somebody who's primarily identified as straight that like not knowing how to operate a vulva, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like especially if you're somebody who has never really had pleasure from your genitalia. I think that that the just the structure of a penis can feel less intimidating 
and more obvious in terms of like what you're quote unquote supposed to do. Yeah, because that's what you've seen. That's what you've seen. It's also tends to just like be a little more clear cut with what for the majority of people works or, you know, and, and I think that there's a chance that maybe what she's reacting to is an intimidation of of branching out from from a penis in terms of genitalia. Sure. Um, but then I'm saying that's why you build the connection first, because ideally you can ask. Oh, totally. I'm just saying that, like, I, you know, yeah. like, I think that 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 might be a fear there. Like, yeah. I know for me, like, if I were to at some point in my life be intimate with someone who had a vulva, like, I know that I would feel very much like I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You're starting and, from the beginning. I mean, there are tons yeah. of people I know who are bi who have let's say only dated cis women and then they get to like, they're like, maybe I want to date a cis man. And then they're like, what do I do with this? Yeah, (laughs) totally. And it's, and it's, you know, and I think there's also something about feeling like being, which you've spoke to before about like feeling like you're too old to be starting over or that you should know this already. And so I, you know. So if you've only associated sex with pain, it's definitely hard to get that out of your head. But mm-hmm. also, I'm like, I feel like there's no pressure to do any particular thing. Like, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a sex therapist. If it's going to heal your whole life to put something in your puss, fine. But, like, I just don't think, <laughs> I don't think that's the, I, I don't think you need to. If it doesn't feel good, why do you have to? Well, I think it's about, you know, and I guess I guess that email did lean more towards exploring penetration. But I think I think that the goal, like you're saying, it should be more like is being sexually intimate with another person something that you can find out that you actually enjoy. Right. And so actually the the email I felt like was I felt like the reader sent it or I felt like the listener sent it in being like, this is a really big problem. And I actually came away from it feeling really hopeful. Yeah. Like I feel like really hopeful about where this person is. I feel like they have like taken such good care of themselves, going to the physical therapist, going to the sex therapist, like right. that all that really tough first steps are are like done. That's amazing, you know? And so now I think it's really getting into what Gabby's talking about where it is like, being maybe more open to who you're willing to date. My genitals work differently than a cis woman's genitals at this point in my transition. You're welcome. Like, thank you to my parents who listen to this. But like, you know what I mean? Like you're you're focusing like on these things that like one cis man, what works for one cis man's penis is not going to work for another cis man's penis. So like you, you there's, there's so much, like you're allowed, I feel like... Sh- She doesn't feel like she's allowed to be like, I actually don't penetrate. Penetration doesn't work for me. Like you're allowed to say that. Yeah, totally. But I also think that when there is a history of of pain, that's like, right. You won't want to try. Or like you're allowed to see like maybe in a different context, it does. Like, I don't think that you need to be making any definitive claims about anything right now right. in your journey. I don't think that you need to attach yourself to a label if that doesn't feel right for you. I don't think that you owe it to anybody to get into this history right. at the beginning of meeting somebody. I really think that like leading like with what Gabby said of just like, are you drawn to this person? Do you want to spend time with this person? Could you see yourself like being 
physically intimate in the wide range that, that can be like w- like even just like maybe even starting from a place if you're going to start exploring outside of cis men of like can I see myself kissing this person yeah right and like yeah un- unless at some point you yeah. do decide that like you are asexual and that that like physical intimacy is not a, a thing that you you want can in also your life. be asexual and hetero romantic or asexual mm-hmm. and and homo romantic or you you might you are you you're trying to think grapple too with like uh, am I also a romantic? You know, like there's mm. there's a lot of different romance is different from sex in terms of those those words. I think she's t- deciding how she needs to represent herself, the people that right, she meets. Right, 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 right. And and I you don't, don't think to. at this point you uh, you need to. I think like really just kind of being open, being drawn to the person. I know that that you're saying that you don't like dating apps, but maybe expanding you know what who you're interacting with on dating apps outside of cis men could could maybe change your experience a bit depends on the Um, app okay cupid lets you write a lot more if you want to like you know or read a lot more about the person yeah and like i also think matchmaking is a wonderful opportunity if it's if it's affordable for you i think putting it out there with your friends that you're now open to meeting any kind of person you know, maybe somebody they hadn't thought of for you before would now kind of ring a bell and just sort of having a a general sense of openness. And I think that we can feel like I don't want to trick somebody, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to present myself in this way and then be like, actually, I'm not interested in sex, but you're not doing that because you don't know yet. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, it's not like you're lying. Yeah. You're just coming from a place of uncertainty. And so there's you're not misrepresenting yourself in any way because you haven't figured it out yet. And so it's kind of taking that pressure off yourself. Weird for a therapist to be like, I think I don't know if this is what she said, but like, oh, you should try to get dick down as if like dildos don't exist. Like as if you couldn't I think just that, go, um, like she's she, emotionally. Means, yeah, right. She's your body might have a trigger response. To that's another what person that's, that's what that's lets different. me. That's what lets me know that it's not just like that this person seems to think your therapist seems to think it's not just penetration, but rather penetration with a person. Right. Because if, if there are physical reasons that cause right pain during penetration, then there are also more just like your body tenses up and right. that in itself causes the pain. And so if you can get to a place of relaxation and calm during <sighs> penetration, it might be different. Yeah. But yeah. And I also think in terms of having a kid, like, don't even they're not even a part of the conversation yet. Don't like worry. that's like this is this is just you exploring you as a human adult looking, you know, to figure things out. Like these people don't need to meet your kid yet. You don't need to worry about that Definitely. for a while. This is just something for you to like really be open and explore. Definitely. Hopefully that was helpful. So, yeah. <laughs> if you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we have an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guests, Lily and Dave from the Power Trip Podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. 
tough questions. This week on the show, we have Dr. Lily K. Ross and David Nichols. Lily is a creator and producer of New York Magazine's cover story, Power Trip. She's been taking a feminist approach to theorizing ethics in psychedelic spaces since 2009, specifically sexual misconduct, abuses of power, charlatans, and the dominance of traditional gender norms. And David is a creator and producer of New York Magazine's cover story, Power Trip, underground researcher and harm reduction advocate. David's work focuses on the social and cultural implications of psychoactive substances, utilizing critical theory and structural analysis to examine the intersections of drugs and society. Hello. Hello. Hi. I wanted to get all of that in there because it's all so interesting. (laughs) Well, thank you. We think so, too. (laughs) So... You two are people I, I had my eyes on because I should give the backstory of my experience with your podcast, where before listening to it, I was like very much a proponent of psychedelics as a future for mental health treatment. We had had a psychedelic researcher on our podcast, sort of like speaking the virtues of it. I, you know, in, in school, we talk a lot about it and how much exciting potential it has. And so that when this podcast popped up on my Apple podcast app, like, and and it was about kind of the dangers of psychedelics, both the underground and the clinical trials, I felt like my defenses go up. I felt like I don't want this to be true. I don't want to believe what they are saying. I hope I'm going to, I'm almost going to listen to this to prove that they're wrong (laughs) in a way, or that their evidence isn't enough to change my mind. But then as I was listening to this show, the opposite happened. And I went, oh, no. (laughs) And I sort of had like a come to Jesus moment where the way that I had just sort of been, you know, full stop, like supportive of psychedelic research, not skeptical of the dangers, like having a really unnuanced approach was not really correct in terms of like my values and how I like to you know, move through the world. And so you guys did a great job of, of educating me and, and changing my mind. And so I, I'm, I hope I'm just so excited to talk to you and, and have our listeners kind of get exposed to all the things that you've uncovered. Thanks. We brought her to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So can you talk about uh, the podcast itself and what, what Allison is reacting to? <laughs> yeah. So. We, uh, as you heard in our bios, have been looking at some of the more challenging and critical and darker sides of psychedelics and psychedelic subcultures for over a decade. And I actually thought I had gotten out of psychedelia after my own experience and community fallout around sexual assault and poor community response. And then we started hearing some allegations about people I had known many years ago that suggested like a level of predatory and abusive behavior, you know, among people who I would consider very influential within the psychedelic therapy movement. And yeah, just kind of took off investigating and and ended up um, partnering up with New York Magazine and put out this podcast. It's nine episodes. The first five of them are very much going into the underground. And then the last four are dealing with the above ground clinical trials and uh, institutions that are involved in some of this. And 
look, I mean, you said like I, you went into it not wanting it to be true. I, I don't want what we found to be true either. And in fact, we continue working to try to change things based on what we found. Yeah, I think the the realities of sort of abuse and cover up are so pervasive and have gone on for such a long time that it's like there's a additional resistance that has built up over the years towards addressing it. Uh, and I think particularly now with psychedelics sort of on the doorstep of medicalization, of, of larger mainstream acceptance and approval, this is precisely or these are precisely the kinds of stories that the medicalization advocates very much want to keep under wraps. And yet, like, uh, Allison, like when you described some of your experience listening to the pod and the way it was structured, you know, opening with the underground and sort of going through the abuses of power and the cover ups there and, and sort of having that hope still of like, OK, well, maybe maybe things are all fine and hunky dory above ground. And then you look at the clinical trials and you see the sort of interweaving of characters who are involved both underground and above ground and the fact that the same or very similar power dynamics, abuses of power and, and transgressions are at play above ground. You know, I, I wish more people had your experience of saying, like, can we pause for a second and figure out what's going on and sort of reassess the terrain? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that really stood out to me was I didn't leave the podcast thinking that psychedelics are the problem. I left the podcast thinking people are the problem. <laughs> and <laughs> this is like, and that it is a really powerful weapon for people to have. Because when you're on these trips, like especially these like, you know, therapeutic level amount of, of psychedelics, the, the amount of power that you're giving to that other person or those researchers is extraordinary. And there doesn't seem to be enough safety nets or regulations involved to make sure that that power is being used correctly. There's like, and I, <clears throat> I imagine you will understand this as a person that's like into psychotherapy. There is no established norm for what psychedelic therapy even is. So if I say like I'm going to somebody and doing cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy or exposure therapy, there is an understanding of like what that means, what the practice and the protocols are, what you can expect. There is like an established body of literature of people debating and discussing like this is what we do here and this is this case study. And, you know, there's there's something robust there that's underpinning the psychotherapeutic practice. When it comes to psychedelic therapy, we're looking at a lot of fringe woo-woo practices and beliefs that have been normalized and perpetuated in the underground and then just kind of been grandfathered into the research settings. Like one of the less woo-woo examples would be the blindfolds and the headphones that you see so often in like images of people in MDMA therapy or psilocybin therapy um, trials. And there are real questions about situations where that's really not advised. And it's like, well, where did that come from? And what is, has that been researched? I think like, you know, people ask us often about solutions and it's like, you know, one of them would be go back to the beginning, do exploratory pilot studies to help determine what is psychedelic therapy and how do you do productive and ethical and sensitive therapy with people who are either under the influence or processing an experience that they had on psychedelics. 
And then to be able to build research protocols around a body of existing research, because there are two psychoactive compounds or psychoactive elements in the room. One of them is the drug and the other is the, the therapy itself. And those things are interplaying in really complex ways. Um, and I think without a much clearer picture of what that means and how to do that, we're, we're looking at like, sure, we, in the pod, we talked about abuse and that's the lowest hanging fruit in some ways. I mean, there's that is an important and significant piece. However, it is a lot bigger than that. There's clinical error that, you know, people or even just like, yeah, clinicians who who are who are making mistakes sometimes seemingly minor mistakes that are amplified by the psychedelics and causing really extreme levels of harm subjectively for the person who's on the receiving end of that as a participant. And so I think, you know, there's a lot that that needs to be learned and discussed and understood. Well, and I think when we're talking about things that are grandfathered in, you know, whether it's blindfolds and, you know, headphones or whatever, like, and when we look at where those ideas come from, it's worth considering the baggage. Like wh when you look and you see that some of the people who put forth that idea originally decades ago are also people who have advocated for psychedelics as as supposed cures or therapies or interventions for homosexuality. I was about know, to say, words. it's going to be conversion therapy, guys. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> Well, but then it gets even darker in the present, right? Because you have folks like Jordan Peterson who are very much interested in psychedelics and psychedelic therapy. And you look at some of the stuff that's going on at Hopkins where you have the intersection of psychedelics and identity and looking at psychedelics and identity change for things like smoking cessation, which our colleague Nishé Devino has like done deep dives into. And it's really like some of the places this could go. Uh, are really dark. Some of the places this has been like it's not just psychedelics for conversion therapy. It's there are historic and ongoing realities of psychedelics as agents of torture, like the the CIA and MK Ultra had a whole uh, <laughs> sordid history, everything from like overdosing elephants to, um, you know, unsuspecting dosing of uh, American citizens. But then even even in the investigation we did, you know, at the center of certain historical lineages, you have this character, Salvador Roquette, who was a Mexican psychiatrist who was working for the Mexican secret police, torturing student dissidents and doing so using psychedelics and sensory overload, you know, uh, incredibly loud music, strobe lights, videos, like multiple video screens or projector screens of like porn and murder and uh, scenes from war and just like completely overwhelming people and coming up with this idea that bad trips might be the best trips that you need to sort of break down to break through and that only when you completely collapse and, and fall apart can you begin to heal. And that idea is still alive and well. And one of his acolytes and, and actually uh, his interpreter was involved in uh, a really unconscionable instance in clinical trials, in, in clinical trials for MDMA for PTSD, where he and his, his wife, who were the therapy team, uh, repeatedly assaulted a participant in the trial on footage, uh, on, on video. And the, the sponsor organization MAPS didn't do anything about it. And still hasn't really. Yeah. And that's just it. It's like when we talk about Roquette and we talk about some of these like really dark histories, like these are not history. Mm. Roquette died in the 1990s, but he, he was hugely influential. And this breed of psychedelic 
therapy that's like, if it hurts, it's healing and you have Mm. to break through resistance to get to the other side. And, you know, I know what's good for you. I know what you need because I'm really experienced in all of this. And like, it's going to get worse, but then it's going to get better. All of those ways of thinking are just normalizing like a person pushing past your boundaries and normalizing like discomfort and suffering and pain in the context of something that's supposed to be therapeutic. And I think it's really important to stress that like, you know, watching those videos as Dave and I did of what happened in the phase two MDMA clinical trial with Richard Jensen, who was the the interpreter for Salvador Roquette, like we just kept looking at each other going, oh, my God, like he's turning up the music and making it more intense when he should be turning like when that's just not that's just not appropriate. And like these different things where it's like, oh, my God, this is Roquette. Like this is like this way of practicing is still alive. It's still here. And I don't think that the public understands when we talk about psychedelic therapy, what the proponents of psychedelic therapy have in mind, what they think is acceptable to do to people under the influence. That's the thing that like keeps me engaged and keeps me because like this is exhausting and and (laughs) really dark and really heavy. And the thing that kind of keeps me really engaged in this is the sense that like the public doesn't know what's coming. The public isn't ready for this. And the clinicians aren't ready for this because how do you train people in a therapy that doesn't exist? Mm. And the regulators aren't ready for this and haven't been ready for this because they don't regulate therapy. They regulate drugs. So they're not even looking at the therapy aspect, like which which is like also this research problem, because when you're trying to determine if a drug is effective, you have to have the same. You have to have controls of the variables across different sites and sessions and settings. And with this MDMA therapy trial, for example, there's indications that like they're not really taking the videos very seriously. And there's like all these variables across the therapist teams that are not being controlled. So how do you actually know what is the MDMA versus like what is maybe a particularly good or bad therapy team? Mm -hmm. Having reviewed some of the data that's not available to the public, that question is a screaming question that really needs to be answered. Can you talk a bit about what was going on in the underground scene? Like, you know, I have friends who like fly out and do ayahuasca retreats and like, I know it's very dark and I know it's, um, I'm sure like huge trigger warning for this entire interview regarding sexual assault. But can you speak to like what what's being covered up down there? Yeah, I mean, it's almost a question of what isn't being covered up in some ways, because it's like we we had a call a week or two ago from somebody who had a disclosure about a shaman that that we're both familiar with, who's been uh, assaulting people for years. Uh, And it's it's known. And it's like it's this question of what can you do when everyone you turn to from media outlets to local authorities is basically like, ah, no story here, or we're not engaged or, or interested in engaging. For what reason are they not interested in engaging? Because it's religious, because the person was on drugs? In some cases, you've got uh, people who pay off local authorities. You have as far as like why. So some of these folks travel around and will move particularly through like affluent communities where people pay them to uh, come to their locality and do ceremony. And a lot of times uh, it's a combination of looking at these figures as spiritual gurus and sort of the spiritual bypassing that comes with allegations uh, against them. You also get the sort of the sort of in-group sense of like, you know, this is our special 
place. This is our access to, I don't know, the divine. And who are you to to sort of uh, sully that? I think there's also really complex tensions around questions of indigeneity when you're talking about, um, you know, more supposedly traditional practices, who who they're being performed for and how and and to what degree some of the folks participating in, say, drug tourism in Latin and South America view themselves as having put themselves in that situation and then being at the mercy of, of whatever is going on. I mean, it gets really murky. And I mean, to be clear, like, it's not just... It's not just folks who are making claims or, or who are traveling across countries or continents to go have these experiences. There are these claims around indigeneity that pop up elsewhere. So like in the first part of the pod, we covered uh, Francoise Borzat and her husband, Aharon Grossbard, who ran the Center for Consciousness Medicine along with their daughter. And, you know, one of Francoise's big claims was that she's like a Mazatec lineage holder in, in the lineage of Maria Sabina and, you know, had all of these claims to authority and power based on her supposed proximity to this traditional practice, which even taking that, like, you can look at uh, Maria Sabina's oral autobiography where, you know, she talks about how even her own daughters aren't wisdom keepers and that mm-hmm. they don't have whatever it is that uh, allows her to do the mushroom ceremonies. So the, these questions around like, who actually gets to make those claims towards that kind of lineage is, is really screwy. But then you look at you look at some of the stuff Francoise did in, you know, using those claims to authority and sort of sacred knowledge and, and indigenous culture and the way that she roped people into, you know, what to us looks like a rather culty group and the abuses that that she and her husband perpetuated and seemed to have trained a bunch of their acolytes to perpetuate. Like, it's a situation in which abuse is normalized, in which the, the dynamics that Lily was going through, what we refer to as psychedelic authoritarianism that that sense of I know what you need. Mm-hmm. I'm here to to heal you. If it goes well, it's because I'm an accomplished healer. If it goes poorly, it's because you simply were resistant to to my I- great techniques. Right. And the way they prey on vulnerable people, particularly now as psychedelics are being heralded as, you know, this this panacea therapy that can treat all sort of treatment resistant trauma, uh, mental, mental health illness. issues. Yeah. And also you're already on drugs. So I imagine there's there's a way of like, well, you don't maybe you don't remember what happened. Yeah. Um, People who are under the influence of any drug can have their credibility hit at. And it's really interesting, like as a sexual violence researcher, something that I've talked a lot about with colleagues and is in the literature is like if a person accused of sexual assault is under the influence, then the then it's an excuse. But if the person who has been harmed is under the influence, then that's a reason to blame them. So there's a lot of double standards at play here. But it's a really interesting moment because there's this, there's the underground stuff that involves like ayahuasca maybe and like, you know, shamans in the Amazon, whether that's in the Amazon or or on tour someplace uh, outside of Latin America. Then there are plenty of guides and shamans who have either claimed to, you know, train with those folks or uh, with a different lineage. And maybe they're doing mushroom circles or maybe they're doing MDMA circles. 
There's a lot of commonalities in the aesthetic. So often like the burning of incenses and the use of beautiful tapestries Mm -hmm. and the creation of like beautiful spaces. Like ceremony is aesthetically pleasing to me. And I think to plenty of other people, it's not everybody's trip, but like it, it can be really, yeah, aesthetically beautiful and satisfying and like adds certain dimensions to the experience. And then there's that thing that happens where when a person is seen as the purveyor of an experience. So if a person is a shaman, I don't even why call them that, but okay. So if like a person identifies as a shaman and they're like giving people drugs, it's really normal for those people to feel amorous towards the shaman, to feel sexualized feelings towards anybody, um, to feel a sense of boundary dissolution, to want to have someone's baby that they've never met before. Maybe it's a shaman, maybe it's somebody else in the group. Like you know, um, psychedelics, the subjective effects of psychedelics cause people to feel very close to other people. They can feel sexualized or enlivened in their body. Like all that stuff is really normal. And then there's the suggestibility enhancing, you know, people are very vulnerable to suggestion on, on psychedelics and can also get into a place of like, well, I'm just going to go with whatever's happening. All of that is inherent to the subjective experience of psychedelics. It is not a reflection of how wonderful and talented and amazing this shaman is or like how much I really do want to have his baby or, you know, whatever. I, and that's not no shade on the people having those feelings. All the shade goes to the person in the position of power who isn't able to recognize. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he takes it personally. Like sometimes they come to believe it. They're like, oh, yes, I really am like a god. And I'm really, you know, I can really make people heal and make people, you know, my penis can heal people. Like people really believe this. It sounds totally off the wall. No, it sounds about right for men, I think. (laughs) (laughs) No, that sounds right. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. I found one of the really compelling through lines was the incredible resistance you met every step of the way trying to get this story out. (laughs) That... (laughs) Nobody still, wants still meeting <laughs> every step of the way. <laughs> that nobody wants to accept this. Also, that you presented why and like the why makes sense. That like we are suffering so much as a species. There is this opportunity to try this new type of treatment for mental health during a time when like mental health is a record low, or at least since we've been keeping track of it, and it's been promised as sort of this miracle. And so nobody wants to let go of that possibility. And because of the way that that FDA trials work, like any dissent is seen as like you will keep this off the market and then you will actively be the cause of harm on other people. Right. So it's like, how do you come to terms with like that? Nobody wants to hear the truth. I don't know that we've come to terms with that. I I think... I think, honestly, it's part of the reason we're still here banging our head against the wall. Um, and thank you for providing a wall for us to be <laughs> oh, no True, truly. I mean, I hope you don't mind me saying that, like, you wanted to meet us before you did the show because I think you have met such resistance. Yeah, I, I think it was important to get a sense of, like, sort of what y'all were interested in and and where you were coming from. And it was like, like we said, when we spoke, like it was a really uh, wonderful chat. And and I think one of the more 
left me feeling more optimistic than <laughs> than many of the the, the yeah, encounters I was we've say, had. What what have the other ones been like, or what has you know why what has this resistance been? Like Allison said, I think a lot of what I speak to around that is like sources that I have who are in the underground and really hearing some of the ways that our work gets talked about in psychedelic spaces. So like hearing a popular psychedelic podcast where they're like abuse is a thing we need to talk about. And it's recently been talked about on a podcast, which we're not going to name by a group that we're not going to name. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, it's it's interesting. There's ad hominem attacks. In other words, like people attacking us rather than taking on the ideas or, or debating the facts of what it is that we have put out into the world. I personally faced a lot of resistance after I had experienced sexual assault. I thought it was pretty cut and dry. Like he's wanted for like he was wanted in Europe for, you know, murdering people like, he, you know, he's alleged of killing a number of people like I kind of thought it was a pretty clear case of like he's kind of a bad guy and like I was a victim of a really bad guy and I have to say that like it's it's really twisted sometimes the way that it that that um it gets it got talked about at least with me where it was like well you know it was a healing opportunity for you and this guy's given you a great gift and you should be grateful to him and Oh, you put yourself in a situation to learn and grow and heal. And like these things that really play into our cultural values around personal responsibility and personal empowerment, even when it's like not necessarily reflective of reality, like people have a hard time recognizing like, oh, my God, you lost control because somebody exerted power over you and really intense ways like people have a hard time grappling with that i had a hard time it was a huge part of my kind of ptsd recovery was grappling with that so it's pretty diverse and and wide-reaching i think looking at like some of the bigger sort of like thinking about what it looks like from more sort of institutional media or mainstream press i mean it's everything we've gotten responses from ranging from sort of the public isn't ready for critical takes on psychedelia or psychedelic therapy. You know, ne never mind that like doing it now would potentially offer some prevention of the harms that are currently ongoing. We've we've heard uh, Michael Pollan still thinks this is cool. So this isn't the time to do this. The, the sense is that people prefer a fairy tale to like looking at the sort of cold, hard, uncomfortable realities, which, okay, I, I get that to some degree. And also, like, at some point, we are all going to have to deal with this one way or another. Um, I think there are real similarities between what's unfolding here and the way that the uh, opiate overdose epidemic has looking, you know, sort of historically when there was the initial memorandum about how pain could be the fifth vital sign and everybody started citing this thing called like the JIC memorandum that was like a half page, uh, like two paragraph little write up that that nobody seemed to have read, but that everybody was using to say, ah, opiates are fine and it's not going to cause addiction and we really need to engage in these ways. But this goes back, I think, Allison, to your earlier question about or, or and comment on like, you know, of course, now as as mental health is declining and we're having, you know, numerous crises, whether it's the, the pandemic or war or, you know, inflation, um, 
Yeah. Uh, climate change, like, like, yeah. you know, like, and, but this goes back to what I would say as like a longtime psychonaut, like, like to me, these psychedelics for examining social problems were sort of the things that got me into psychedelics and just sitting with the weird thoughts. And I would say this goes back to like histories of psychedelia, where you have Aldous Huxley, like 64 years ago, saying technological and economic progress seem to have been accompanied by psychological regress. The incidence of neuroses and psychoses is apparently on the increase. Still larger hospitals, yet kinder treatments of patients, more psychiatrists and better pills. We need them all and need them urgently, but they will not solve our problem. In this field, prevention is incomparably more important than cure. For cure merely returns the patient to an environment which begets mental illness. But how is prevention to be achieved? That is the $64 billion question. And so like... As we look around this world that is in so much crises, I mean, just sticking with climate change for a moment, like the planet is literally on fire. You know, the notion that we can treat people with some mushrooms or some MDMA or, you know, whatever novel psychedelic they're cooking up in a lab somewhere, then we're all going to be good. You know, then we can all attain like peak mental health and we'll all sing Kumbaya together. Like that ain't it. (laughs) There are much larger social realities that I think we need to tackle. And unless and until we're willing to talk about that, like psychedelics are going to be a drop in the bucket and potentially contribute a whole lot of additional harm. Yeah, I think something worth mentioning is just how sophisticated the PR campaign has been of pro-psychedelic people. Rick Doblin, who is the head of MAPS, which is spearheading the charge with their now phase three study for um, FDA approval of MDMA as a medicine, has been really, he's said multiple times, we don't do science, we do political science. And looking at the way that psychedelics have been talked about by researchers and by um, advocates in the media is its own really interesting study. So for example, like preparing for this podcast, we were listening to the interview you guys did with Matt Johnson. And one of the things he will say is like, he uses the word treatment. He says, Ben Sessa is treating whatever with mushrooms. Or MDMA. What was yeah, it? Yeah, alcohol use disorder with, with MDMA. MDMA. You know, or he'll say, you know, we're trying these treatments. And it's like, as a researcher, you shouldn't really be talking about these as treatments. They're not proven as treatments. It is an experimental intervention. This is research that is underway that is attempting to determine the safety and the efficacy of extremely vulnerability enhancing and suggestibility enhancing drugs in vulnerable populations. And we have to be really careful how we talk about that. So the way that researchers are often talking about, and they'll often throw something in there like, oh, we need to research and understand this more, which boosts their credibility. And at the same time, when you listen to what they're saying about psychedelics, they are taking the efficacy of psychedelics as a foregone conclusion, which suggests that like, I mean, that creates real obstacles as far as producing rigorous and high quality research. We wrote about it in an article for New York Mag around the time that Power Trip stuff was coming out called The Trials of Rick Doblin, trying to really unpack the true believer problem and what that means for the research methods and the ethics. Because when you have true believers involved in research, that affects the way that they are clinically present with the research mm-hmm. participants. And it, it affects the way that they're designing the trials from the outset. And so there are things that are getting missed, things that are getting papered over, things that are getting reinterpreted like you know researchers saying oh it's going to get worse before it gets better it's like you're a researcher you don't know that this drug is going to make it get better and yet you're telling a person who is highly suggestible 
that that's what's happening. You know, those things affect the data. So, I mean, and just to underscore, like, psychedelic research, fine. I mean, decriminalize everything first and foremost, but like psychedelic research is, is, you know, there's, there's merit to doing it, but it has to be done to the highest standards of ethical and robust scientific research. And what do you think is the reluctance to do it that way? That it will just take longer, that it, that there's a chance it won't get approved, that they just don't, that they already think they are doing it that way, even though they're not. Sort of all of the above and then some. Like I've been asked by some people, uh, researchers, people involved in different institutions, you know, to to propose solutions. They'll say, hey, we hear all of your criticisms. What would you propose mm. to, to address some of this? And one of the things that I've put forward that people have agreed would address it, but but nobody wants to do is to to go back, say, in the case of MDMA for PTSD, Let's say phase one research is good enough because that basically establishes the safety profile and the risk to participants physiologically. And I think that 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 sort of phase one research is sound enough. But let's go back to phase two and rerun phase two and phase three, not with maps, with some sort of like clinical research organization that's contracted out in order to address some of the bias and the true believer issues. And in order to do that, you have to redesign the protocols because there are huge issues with the protocols ranging from actual holes in them. So like in the phase three protocol, there's a for, hole for MDMA for MDMA. Right. Yeah, it, it says, you know, turn to section 4.2 to see mental health exclusion criteria and you turn to section 4.2 and there are no mental health exclusion criteria. At the point where the, the therapy, as Lily has pointed out, is a black box and it's not being really observed by maps and and there's sort of all of these different woo-woo practices that can go down. Like we spoke to maps's head of training and basically pointed out to her that there are over a dozen different supposed therapeutic modalities that can happen in any therapy session, some of which are incredibly fringe. And, you know, how is it possible to have any sort of standardization among these? She insisted to us that the therapist manual didn't allow for all of those modalities. And she continued insisting to us until we read it to her from the therapist manual. And then she really didn't have anything to say. So I would suggest that like, you know, when you have holes in the in the protocol, when you have issues with the manual, all of that needs to be redesigned, needs to be approved by a credible institutional review board that handles ethics. The one that is currently in place is a bit of a nightmare. And so when you look at it, it's like, okay, we retool the approach to research, we rerun phase two and phase three, and then we see where that puts us. You know, frankly, we don't know if we rerun phase two, is it going to move to phase three? But when people who are involved in these institutions doing this research hear that, they're uninterested because we're talking sort of minimum five to 10 years, God knows how many millions of dollars, like Even if it were a solution, it is an undesirable one simply because of the time and the resources involved. I think at the moment, even though there are a number of like publicly traded psychedelic companies whose shareholder value has like plummeted like 85, 90 plus percent over the last couple of years, people are still viewing this as a potentially lucrative industry, um, lots of money to be made, lots of clout to be gained. And I think anything that presents an obstacle to that is viewed as undesirable for the same reasons we see it sort of across industries. Like this is no, 
this is sort of no different from any other facet of capitalism. One of the big issues is that the people that are going to be drawn to this type of treatment and hope that it works are like also the most vulnerable people in our population, which compounds everything. Yeah, those are the people it's being marketed to. And this is one of the other things that really concerns me and that we talk about a lot, which is that like, there's a number of people out there who were not for this level of PR and marketing would not really think to try psychedelics and very possibly for the better. And yet they see this like, oh, it's so promising. Oh, I can I can get this drug on the like on the Internet or from this guy down the street or, you know, whatever. Or they they more it seems what the more of the stories we hear is like, oh, I can find a guide and I can pay that guide and that guide's going to keep me safe. And we hear it in the researchers all the time saying like, well, it's safer with two therapists in the room and it's it's safer with guides and like that's a more a better, more controlled environment. Prove it. Where's the where's the data that suggests that really and truly? Yeah. Um, I haven't seen it and I have spent a lot of time looking. <laughs> so, you know, I just. Yeah, I think I think that's a really important point. Right. Like when I think about the things that I like about psychedelics, you know, uh, a lot of it deals with kind of how weird they get and the the sort of ontological and epistemological questions that that they make me consider. And that's not everyone's cup of tea. And there are people who I've spoken with who have uh, a not insignificant number of people who are quite clear that they had never really done recreational drugs. They had no interest in psychoactive or mind altering substances. But their therapist or someone they knew who they trusted basically said, hey, you know, I know you've been struggling with these issues. Have you considered there's been all of this press coverage? Michael Pollan thinks it's cool. And then you have folks who would not have otherwise done psychedelics doing them simply because they think that this might address their their issue. And, and, and it's the kind of thing where like been able to help. That nothing else exactly. Been able and, that, to help them. and no one is more desperate for it to work than them. I mean, talking both to clinical trial participants and folks underground, like like these are people who want nothing more than to be better, who have tried so much, who have done, you know, their own research, pursued sort of every mainstream and alternative thing they can think of in pursuit of relief. And then when they hear all of these mainstream, you know, news or or media coverage of psychedelic for mental health, you know, they think, well, this has to be it. This you mean this is going to not even just treat me, but cure me? Sign me up. Where do I sign? Oh, I have to go out of the country. I have to go see this person who I might have questions about. I have to, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like I'm yep. willing to do it. No hurdle is too great. Yep. And when they're in that setting under the influence, you know, and they're they're already suggestible, but they also really want to heal. So if the person that they have already identified as an expert is saying, well, you know, it might be really healing if blah, um, if I, you know, I'm going to sit on your chest now is like one thing that we've heard a practitioner talk about. It's like, and I don't even think he said anything to the person. He just like engaged in the behavior. And it's like, you know, if a person is really there giving everything they've got to trying to like hurt less than they were hurting before, they're likely to be willing to do whatever the expert in the room tells them to do. And, you know, in a lot of contexts, like if, if you step back and look at that, it's like, well, yeah, and who could blame them? That makes perfect sense. 
But then you get to the other side of it and they're like, hey, this thing happened. I didn't feel good about it. And people are like, oh, well. It's your fault because yeah. you didn't say no. You asked for it. You put yourself in that situation. Ugh. I mean, and there are there are real sketchballs in the underground. You know, there, there's this guy who used to be quite public about working with 5MEO DMT named Martin Ball, who is literally on record, like like on video, talking about how he vomits or vomited on on people because that's what they needed to heal while they were under the influence, how he touches their genitals because that's what they need. He how, sticks their, his thumb like, down their throat, down their throat, like no. like and. And no. people and he felt comfortable saying this publicly and people defended him and people applauded at the end of the talk <laughs> like it's we we with the organization we work with symposia, we actually published uh, a good bit of coverage on that. And the amount of vitriol. just like vitriol we received from people in different We're, psychedelic communities was yeah. ridiculous. Again, as with as with Lily's rapist, like. You would think this is a really easy case to just say, nope, that behavior is unconscionable, intolerable, unacceptable, whatever. Not in the psychedelic world. We're the assholes. <laughs> we are the assholes. High five. And I think another like major misunderstanding is, at least in the way it's marketed, is like, it's like, and after just two to three sessions, you're cured. But something that I think your podcast really touched on was the importance of aftercare. That like a lot of times these sessions, even if not, even if abuse doesn't happen during the session and, and you know, the sessions themselves are above board, there's a lot that needs to be done afterwards to like unpack what happened, unpack what it's come up for you to remain in the therapist's care. And I feel like a lot of these treatments are headed towards like one and done and if you, you know, maybe and thinking, oh, I can afford this one session. That's all I need. Exactly. But I actually can't afford six more months of therapy. Yeah. And then kind of being left out to dry. And like a part of that, too, is just like the duty of care of the therapist, you know, and right. also just like the fact that right now the dominant model in the way we talk about psychedelic therapy is that it is broken out and separate from other facets of a person's life. So you have people who are like dedicated psychedelic therapists, which by the way, I think is a terrible idea. I don't think that there are human beings out there who are like really adept and and built to be on the receiving end of that level of adoration and to be present with people who are like putting that much on them on a regular basis. So, you know, there's a lot to be said about like the model, the dominant model for what psychedelic therapy is supposed to be. But the baseline is like, you know, I, I think... Like, I don't think people should be practitioners. I don't think people should be professionally giving people psychedelics in any context um, until like unless that is a robust research context and we're trying to determine how effective it is. But for those who do that, because they whether who cares what I think, uh, clearly not that many people, um, <laughs> you know, there are people that are doing that. I think those people have a duty of care, not just to get somebody to the other side of the trip unscathed, but to get them to the other side of their process mm -hmm. unscathed. And if you don't have it in you to do that, which I don't think many people do, then stay the fuck away. What are you doing here? Go get another job. A lot of people talk about doing psychedelic guiding as this like sacred calling that they're that's like the thing they're meant to do and that they're entitled mm. to do. It's like, fuck off. Like, you're not entitled to be giving mental health care to vulnerable populations in an unregulated and illegal market. Like nobody is, yeah. you know, and if you really believe that about yourself, then that's suggesting a level of grandiosity that's maybe kind of contraindicated with working with vulnerable populations in the first place. Woo!
Yes, 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 yes. I'll applaud your TED Talk. You don't even have to put any fingers down my throat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think like a little less fiery, but also like this this idea of a couple treatments and you're cured. Like when we're talking about people who are dealing with systemic realities, like I, I don't think a couple psychedelic sessions is going to cure anyone of the traumas of you know, working jobs below living wage, dealing with the fallout of industrial civilization, dealing with, you know, war, climate change, like the whole nine. But but it does get talked about that way. And one of the things that I found particularly disturbing is that maps will talk up how, you know, when when they send their reportings to FDA, they haven't found any uh, instances of ongoing drug seeking behavior from clinical trial participants. But we've talked to a number of clinical trial participants who said they went in having never done psychedelics and now they're still using psychedelics on their own, which, again, like do the drugs you want. Like it's not a judgment around that. But when you have people who are saying, look, like I felt that I needed more than these sessions could give and I felt like I needed to continue uh, doing, say, MDMA uh, on my own after therapy, like. That is a relevant and important data point that becomes even more relevant and important when you consider that Rick Doblin has been open about the fact that the FDA is going to limit the lifetime number of MDMA sessions you can do. The reason being that they're concerned about neurotoxicity from chronic MDMA use. So what happens then if let's let's be generous and say that the FDA says they're going to cap it at 11 MDMA sessions over your lifetime? If somebody gets to the end of 11 sessions and feels that they need more, you have a de facto tunnel to the underground where now you're buying, you know, in the in in the context of a criminalized drug where we don't have safe supply, like the question of where you're going to get the drug, who you're going to go see uh, as far as if, if you want to do it with a therapist or a practitioner or whomever like that gets dicey. I mean, it just sort of stacks up the risk. And this is all in service to, as Rick says, political science, the desire to get MDMA and other psychedelics legalized as uh, medical interventions, because that seemed more politically viable than just, you know, doing away with criminalization. And really, it's about, you know, using psychedelics to turn the Titanic of humanity away from the iceberg and create a globalized spirituality by 2050. He he actually said that. Yes, he does. He says that. Yeah. Yep. It's a cult. <laughs> I mean, it is, uh, that was definitely a takeaway of mine. Um, <laughs> I mean, I could talk to you guys about this for for decades, but really, you know, everyone should really listen to this full podcast, should listen to the different things that you've written about it. And um, now I have to just abruptly change gears and ask if you'd like to play a game show. <laughs> Hell yes, we would. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have and then tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I get to decide, you know, who who is the most enlightened being and answer. Yeah, you you get to judge us based on our choices. (laughs) Uh oh oh boy (laughs) so our first game is america's favorite game show would you stay with this cheater 
you find out that your partner of 47 years used to slap their receptionist's butt every day when they worked at a law firm 20 years ago. They now recognize that this was wrong, but at the time they did it every morning for seven years while shouting, that's a hot crossed bun. Would you forgive this cheater? How did the secretary feel about it? Well, they never really knew because, you know, it was a power dynamic. I have to go. And it's not for the cheating. I have to break up with them because they're sexual harasser. And I, I need to track down this poor woman and buy her a boat? I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that I'm struck by is, is so so 47 years on, so the, like how, how does the person, I mean, figure what? So what, they were at least like 45 in their 40s, something like that at the point where they're doing this? Like, how do they not know? Like, I, I'm, 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 my, I feel my brain glitching out on the questions. I, I think I'm with Gabby on this. Like, it's, it's not about the cheating. It's about what the fuck is going on there. Why would you well, yell hot office culture? <laughs> I mean, okay, at the point where clearly I'm, I've been with a lawyer for 47 years, I already have so many questions. <laughs> so I think if I just put myself in that reality for a second, I think I have to stay so I can exact revenge on behalf of all women in the most bizarre ways for the remainder of our time together. Our producer just was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah what are your tactics I feel like this is like getting into like because I wouldn't want to play mind games and I wouldn't want to like be an abusive piece of shit so the revenge needs to be like as many just like kind of gaff moments and like booby traps and like you know what and just just trying to like create really awkward social moments and social death by a thousand paper cuts social death by like by like a thousand uh rubber bands around the the sink squirty you know like that like that level of like april fool's day pranks but like every day forever well i really thought you said you were gonna do a gone girl but you just decided to do like a prank, a prank show in Practical Jokers. Gonzo girl. <laughs> Gonzo girl. <laughs> ah! Okay, I, I think we can all agree that that was the correct answer. Yeah, no, no <laughs> question. <laughs> Gonzo girl. If we named these episodes after things said in the episode, Gonzo girl would be the one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, our next game. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) Shortcut, yes. (laughs) You are recently divorced and your child, 10, isn't handling it well. They say that they don't want you to date anyone until they are at least 25. And to make them feel better, you say, okay, and then date a bunch of people behind their back. One week after their 25th birthday, you announce that you are engaged to a person you have secretly been dating for three years. Are you a terrible parent? No. No. <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> Why are you not a terrible parent? I mean, 25 is, you know, uh, 18 would be unreasonable. I think, well, I mean, what is your responsibility to give your child control of your dating life. Yeah, at some point yeah, there's got to be 18? at some point there's actually got to be a conversation like when the kid is like 12 that says, "Honey, like you're starting to date people. I also get to date people and I shouldn't have made that promise and we're going to renegotiate this now." Mm. 
Well, like that's that. a very rational way to deal with it. Sure. <laughs> I would maybe say until they're 18. But here's the problem is that then you're kind of like bringing your kid, these people into your kid's life without their consent. Like they don't know these people. They're not getting a chance to meet them. I'm going to get engaged to someone who's never met my kid. So I don't know if they get along. No way. No way. But you also bring your child into this existence without their consent and subject them to the horrors of like being on this earthly plane. As a human. <laughs> sure. So so keep them from knowing that their parent dates just in order to spare them from one of life's more I mean, terrifying and gross realities. But this is just it. The whole setup is like so problematic. That's why it's like when they're young, you got to sit them down and be like, we got to renegotiate this, pal. Like, I'm not going to make this agreement. But they, if the, but I also I do think that there's a lot to be said about, you know, being cautious about bringing, you know, who's brought into a kid's life and being yeah. receptive and responsive to what a kid thinks. But also, like, what if the kid is actually a narcissistic sociopath and, like, you don't really want people to meet your kid because your kid's, like, really messed up because they were, like, you know, whatever. Like, I, who knows? Like, Or maybe the best parents are the ones that don't have children. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. I think my dogs agree with that. <laughs> I thought Lily was coming up with some kind of, like, orphan scenario where, like, the you bring in, like, this is my new wife. And then, like, I'm, they, like, get along in front of you. And then when you turn around to make tea, the kid is like... <laughs> <laughs> It's a, this is a podcast, Gabby. <laughs> oh, the kid like um makes a slashing motion against their throat. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think I think you've definitely taken some missteps along the way. <laughs> but, um, Beginning with the choice to have a child. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> David said the best parents are the ones who have no kids at all. <laughs> okay, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You were working on a group project in graduate school. When one of your group members gets a text, they gasp and announce that they have to go because their grandmother is in the hospital. Okay. You all tell them not to worry and you can finish up the work without them. It comes out later that their grandmother has been in the hospital for two months and they just went to visit her like they do every Thursday. Would you forgive this liar? <laughs> I mean, who who actually likes working on group projects? I, th I think you have no, to. No, I hate it. I think you're obliged I to. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> any, any port in a storm, any excuse to get out of uh, group projects, all's fair in love and group projects. Also, props for going to visit Gran every Thursday. Right? I bet you Gran really appreciates that. And I wonder what lies you're telling her. <laughs> <laughs> Gran, I'm married. Gran, I'm running for president. She's like, against who? Reagan? And you're like, that's right, Gran. <laughs> you have access to the internet in a hospital. Oh, I was assuming she was like kind of like in a coma a little bit. Just, just a, oh. a little bit and of a she's coma. Still, but she still replies. <laughs> <while coma. laughs> like she's a in a little coma. coma and she doesn't know what year it is, but she can still kind of write, respond to you. <laughs> But she oh, like okay. it's a mini coma. You know, mm -hmm. It's a mini yeah. coma. <laughs> a coma light. Um. <laughs> and so <laughs> diet coma. Um, and so she. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I mean, I don't fault them. They really are like the gasp was too much. But I don't know. They really were where they said they were. 
that's the thing is did they really lie? They didn't lie. Or did you make some assumptions? Well, they yeah, gave you the I gasp. made assumptions. The gasp gave the gasp you, it was the hook to make the but assumptions. But maybe it was the gasp mm-hmm. because they forgot they were supposed to visit Gran and someone was like, hey, you're supposed to visit Gran. <gasps> that's true. Today might be the day she wakes up from her tiny coma. <laughs> <laughs> so that's forgiveness all around, I think. It's just a little bit I of agree. a I think so. <laughs> and then the next group project, they have to do it all themselves. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Oh man, group projects. Yuck. <laughs> Horrible. I have to do one every week. I was in this gonna class say, but don't you have to do one every week with this podcast? That's a fun group project. To, for better or worse, well, man, we've we've had some tough times. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a, a podcast where we have lied to our audience about our ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> we uh we have almost had to what is it dis disillusion dissolve the, the partnership dissolve the part the group project a few times so we've made it through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't thank you enough for replying to my random Twitter DM for agreeing to meet with us for doing this show. And where can people follow all the amazing work and research that you're uncovering? Probably the best place is Symposia, uh, which is P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A dot com. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and... The Book of Faces. Ah, we're not really (laughs) there, but we're there. Yeah. Um, and, then, and it's called Power it. Trip. Yeah, cover story Power Trip was published um, by New York Magazine, and that came out like a year ago. And if you go to symposia.com slash power trip, you can find the episodes, transcripts, uh, power tripping bonus episodes where we sort of unpack the different characters and dynamics and sort of everything that that went down or a bunch of what went down around the show. Yeah, and then I'm also on Twitter at Lily K. Ross. K-A-Y. And I'm there at D underscore underscore Nichols. Yeah, the double underscore will get you every time. That's right. <laughs> it really will. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks for so much us. for having us. It's, it's been, been great. super fun. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about revenge. Ooh. It's time for Topics! X, 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 Boo, boo. Bye, bye. Baby. We all went low. Yes. When you go low, we go lower. That's mm-hmm. called revenge. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. That's our segue. We're talking about revenge. What are your thoughts on it? And how much do you crave it? I used to be very pro-revenge, but now I've realized that sometimes in the long game of waiting to get revenge on someone, it turns out that like you learn more context and they actually maybe weren't that bad of a person. And now it's like not as satisfying. Agree. Wow. I used to be very pro-revenge, but I never actually like sought it. Yeah. But it was something I would fester on for a very long time and then kind of plot it out in my head. Be like, if this were to happen, then this would happen. But now I'm just like, whatever. You know, what's interesting is that oftentimes the people that you want to get revenge against um, fuck themselves over in the end. Yeah. You don't even have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You just watch them continue to ruin their own lives. But the people that I've been like, I hope something bad happens to you. 
It's because they something is wrong with them that they will then like they do things to to ruin their own lives. I don't even have to lift a finger. I feel like the people that historically I would want revenge on, I now just hope to never hear anything about ever again. That's what it right. is. Irrelevance That's is my the best favorite revenge. Thing. Because then like they're, as the kids say, living rent free in your head. And then like, yeah. then it's taking up emotional capacity that you could be putting somewhere else. It's like, I don't, why am I wasting energy on this person that in the end doesn't really matter in the long run? Yeah. Like, I would rather just, like, somehow never hear anything about them ever. Yeah. Like, if somebody bumps into them, don't tell yeah, me. Yeah, I don't want <laughs> them in my head. Like They're so irrelevant that, like, it's just like I wouldn't even come across them on my feed. Like, they're just irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I know. I mean, I mean, more just like, yeah. Okay, what about, not exes or friends, what about, like, a teacher that fucked you over? Or, like, or like someone, mm. you know, like, someone that is, like, I don't know, someone that like hurt your mom years ago or something like, you know what I mean? There's this one teacher that did something that I don't want to get into, but they did something that really pissed me off. This happened two years ago, you know, peak pandemic time where I had a lot of time on my hands and I was going to look them up and send them like a really strongly worded email and they were dead. Good. See, (gasps) time works itself out, baby. I wouldn't have sent them. I wouldn't have sent them an email. I would have just taken their email that I had access to and signed them up for a million like magazines. Yeah. Signed them up for like random shit to come to their house. No, but like they needed to be told off. Mm. I just was a child and didn't have the words to express my anger for them. And now I did. And I was just, you know, I had time on my hands and I was going to really let it out. But they're dead. I found their obituary. Did you feel like that was like closure? How did you feel? It Were wasn't you, like, like closure. You... I was just like, huh, okay. Did they, they die young? This. Yep. I do feel like I I think I would be okay with people getting fired if my yeah. if the reason that I don't like them is because they did something in their job that was like atrocious. Yeah. yeah that's... So that kind of revenge I can get behind where like, oh, I found out that this teacher I hated got fired or this old boss I had got fired. That feels nice. Or a doctor, <laughs> you know, that did something yeah. terrible, like fired. Yeah. For I sure. Feel, yeah. I feel like the thing that they did isn't something that young people should like. Like if they were still doing this kind of thing, they needed to break the cycle of doing it because yeah. it yeah. wasn't right. Yeah, and so I felt right. like my email would have, you know, helped. I mean, even though it's been like 20 years, right. but I was just like this. This has been bothering me all this time. Yeah. Well, sometimes like sometimes people are just talking about it, just being open about like something that got screwed up or that something that someone did is like enough to feel cleansed in a way that you don't need revenge. Like. Sometimes like like there was this big thing that happened at Mal's school and I won't speak to it, but there was like a really terrible thing that happened at Mal's school and Mal just started talking about it on TikTok and people were really angry. Like people from their area were like really angry that they were talking about this thing that happened. But then also conversely, a bunch of people were like, I, thank you. Like no one. We, I also found that atrocious. And like I found this person to be this way and like nobody ever said anything. And I think like, it's not like they could fire him. It's not like they could do anything because I don't think he works there. I don't even know. But like, it was just the, the, it was cleansed rather than being like, I'm going to find out where this guy lives and like egg his house. It's more like 
you're cleansed by the truth coming out. You know what I mean? Or just somebody being able to like hear what happened and say that was fucked up. Right. Exactly. Like that, that is like can be so healing in a lot of ways when you like to be like, is it bad? Because sometimes you can feel icky to hate somebody or right. it can feel icky to be like so mad at someone. For there to be validation of like, no, I would be too. Or like, that wasn't okay. Like sometimes that kind of fills like the itch that maybe revenge would, I, you know, we think would fill. The mm. best revenge is living well, people say, you know. They to, do say it. To not, like, what am I going to do? Like, to there's nothing I can do that will change what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, am I petty? Absolutely. Yeah. Will I like, (laughs) will I do small things to get in the way of people? Sure. Will I do a lot of stuff that people will never know I did it? Or what? You don't worry about it. Okay. Or I do a lot of stuff that like, and I'm sure like I do a lot of stuff kind of, I'm, I'm always kind of scheming behind the scenes or like I do like it. And, and I'm the opposite. I'm also the person that if you, did something nice for me or if you helped me, I'll help you forever. Like if you're like, like I'll get you whatever you need. I'll do, I'll go and like, you know, recommend you for jobs. Like I'll do like, like anybody that I feel deserves it. It's like this strong sense of justice both ways where like if someone I feel deserves it and they're not getting it, Mm -hmm. I'm like out of my way to be like, you will now succeed. Versus like if somebody doesn't deserve it, I'm like, well, I'm just going to get all the people I like to surpass you. Bye. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. <laughs> I was learning about the rule of reciprocity and how strong it is in humans that if like somebody helps you in any way, you're like, I must repay this. Right. Well, they don't have to repay it, but I just feel like sometimes it's so. No, but you were saying that you feel that way, that when somebody helps you, uh, that you really want to help them back. That's the rule of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Cost nothing. And it's a wonderful way to manipulate people once you know about it. <laughs> there we go. I swear. And this is what we've talked on before that, like, I'm reading this book all about influence and influencing people. Like if I allowed my bad side to come out. I know. That's I why could... I said, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to I'm about to unleash I could really do some bad stuff. You could do some bad stuff while also doing some good stuff. Like in your mind, bad stuff is like I'm gonna help so much that this person will quote like me. What? Like, okay. No, it, but you could do you, it in a way of like you do something nice and then you have them do something a little shady. And then Ah. the more good you do for them, you kind of bring them into your fold. And so that's called life. It's manipulation. Ah, well, say la vu, tomato, tomato. (laughs) I I like small stuff that I know will like Mal calls it my small mischief, where it's just like little things that will irk people that I'm like, I don't have to do a whole big thing, but just a little something that'll inconvenience your day. Oh, my God. (laughs) This is terrifying. Why? It's small. Uh, Do the small things build up to something big? No, 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 no. It's just like little, little small stuff, you know, little tiny little mischiefs. You know, you can't, I can't give you an example because I've got them running all the time. I feel deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm just very It's not anything that's going to ruin their life. I feel like it's it's what what you said about, about signing them up for stuff on emails. Yeah, sure. That's one. Put their email. On the dark web. Not on the dark web. Sign them up for some newsletters. Who does that hurt? Nobody. It's just inconvenient. 
Do you ever heard of that one, that thing someone said where you make a bunch of keys? Yeah. And then you put the person's phone number on all the keys and then they're just going to get, and then you throw them, you leave them in different parts of the city. And then for like the next like few months, they're just going to get random calls all the time being like, I found your keys. And it's just going to be like, take up so much of their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, okay. Allison's so <laughs> upset. Allison looks so upset. Or that company that'll just like mail you a potato, mail anybody a potato. Yeah, I love that. I want just like a small, like, like, okay, like I, if I don't like someone, maybe I want to like go to a new social media and register their name. I, so you are taking active <laughs> steps towards revenge constantly. It's but they're like, like little, like it's not anything like. But they're still active. Eh. You got to do, you're do, you're <laughs> physically doing something. Yeah. In the name of revenge constantly, it sounds like. Or like even if someone hurt, like someone hurt Drew, like one, this girl hurt Drew's feelings and Drew didn't want to do anything. But I was like, all strangers on a train. So I just like unfollowed. I, I really all I did was unfollow her. And then Mal was like, how is she going to like? And I was like, no, it's worse if I unfollow her versus if Drew unfollows her because she's like, well, Drew like forgives me. But like now she has to think Drew's friends are unfollowing me like. Does that mean like that? And then she would even notice that. So Mal said she's not going to notice. Cut to she immediately texts Drew. Why did Gabby unfollow me? Did you do the thing where you make them unfollow you too? Yes. Yeah, that's the thing. And and the thing is, is that she now she's like, what is Drew? What did Drew say about me that made Gabby think that I'm so terrible that they must unfollow me? Because she knows what she did to Drew. So she can rationalize Drew unfollowing her, but she doesn't know what I know and what I might be telling other people. So it spikes the anxiety. Okay. I have no loyalty to this girl like Drew does. So now she thinks maybe I'm telling everyone that she's a piece of shit. She doesn't know. Seems like you are. No, I actually didn't. I just unfollowed her and then let her stew in it. (laughs) (laughs) That takes no energy. This is why I'm so good at being a Gemini. I should be a reality TV producer because I can like make people crazy slowly. I think you should be a reality TV star. (laughs) I feel like you would cause, you would be such the villain of whatever season and whatever show you are on. But nobody would know because I'm sneaky. But when they do the like- Are you kidding me? Your confessionals I know, that's what I was going to say. The confessionals, you would- During the thing, no one would know. And then in my confessionals, I'd be like- So you would be like, (laughs) like everyone at home would either hate you or love you, but then the contestants would have no clue what was going on. Yeah. Which I feel like that makes- Yeah, at the after show, after everybody's watched everything, then they're pissed at you. This is perfect TV. Yeah. Because like, (laughs) like, I'm the person who like somebody's like, why- like, oh, like what happened? Like somebody took my like food from the fridge and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And then the ITM is just me eating their food. <laughs> you got to go on I'm Big like, Brother. This person didn't deserve food. Big Brother. Yeah, I should be on Big Brother. Someone please put me on Big Brother. Have you ever applied? No, but they do Celebrity Big Brother. Okay. I would like to be on Celebrity. I'm not going to apply to a re- reality show. I want to be on a celebrity you version of You famous enough to be on Celebrity Big Brother? Yes. So many less famous people are on that. Who? Oh, really? So many. I don't know. Remember when um we got asked to do The Amazing Race, but you don't want to do it? Yeah. <laughs> I, that would be terrible TV. I feel like y'all they would argue like- it within the f- first stop and then it'd be over with. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to introduce America to the worst side of myself. Well, whatever. Allison, I think we would have been amazing on The Amazing Race. No, I didn't want to bungee jump. 
I told you that anything you didn't want to do, I would just do it. If it was like eating cockroaches, I'd do it. If it was like jumping, I'd do it. Don't you both have to do it? I don't really know how it works. It's like a team thing. Oh. Anyway, why do we rate this episode? I rate it 81 out of 79. I would eat a cockroach for you, Allison Raskin. Oh, you would eat a cockroach for the fame and the exposure. (laughs) For you, out of love for you. (laughs) I will rate it 42 out of 17 hard truths that the psychedelic community doesn't want to acknowledge. Look, this show is controversial. That's why we have such a huge listenership. (laughs) I knew Gabby had something, so I was waiting for it to come out. I rate it 10 out of 2 global day of podcasting because we were worldwide today for the whole day. Ooh, we were. We were. Thank you to Lily K. Ross and David Nichols for being our guests. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at She Is Not Melissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, Patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn, and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. Um, you can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give them reviews. Okay, bye! Forever Dog.